I don't know how many of you are into classic literature, but I want to start today by talking about a book called East of Eden by John Steinbeck. Have any of you read that book? One person has read that book. That's progress. That's, that's good. All right. So East of Eden is a retelling of the story of Cain and Abel from the book of Genesis. If you don't know the story of Cain and Abel, they were brothers. They both made sacrifices to God. God said to Abel, I accept your sacrifice. To Cain, he said, I do not accept your sacrifice. Cain got really angry and he murdered his brother Abel. And that's the story of Cain and Abel. And East of Eden is a creative retelling of this story set in the early 1900s in the USA. Only it doesn't just retell this story once. It retells this story again and again and again over the course of several generations within the same family. And each generation plays out the story in its own way, but each generation is essentially playing out the same story of Cain and Abel. And by the end of the book, you start to get this feeling that things are just never going to change in this family that this family is just stuck in this destructive cycle of every generation playing out this same destructive, murderous story again and again and again. But then right at the very end of the book, the father says something to his son that gives you hope that somehow the family's going to break this cycle and it's not going to have to be this way forever. And I'm not going to tell you what he says. I'll, I'll let you read the book and figure that out for yourself. Hopefully that might get one or two people excited to read the book. But the book of Judges is in many ways just like East of Eden. There's been, you know, if, if you've been with us as we've gone through the story of the Bible this year, there's been lots of rebellion by the Israelites as they've left Egypt and gone through the wilderness, but now they've gotten to the promised land and things are looking good. They've got a generation that obeys God, but then not long after they turn from him again and they rebel against God. And it doesn't just happen once, like in East of Eden, it happens generation after generation. And each generation turns from God in ways that are unique from the generations before them and after them, but all following the exact same pattern. And as the book goes on, things keep getting worse and worse and worse. And you start to feel like, man, they're just doomed to follow the same pattern forever. And just like in East of Eden, the book ends with this line that gives you hope that maybe there's a hope that things could change in the future. And so today we're going to look at this pattern of rebellion in the book of Judges. We're going to look at the hope that the book points to, and we're going to see what that has to say to our lives today. And as we do this, what we're going to see is that we need a king who can save us from ourselves. We need a king who can save us from ourselves. So we'll look at Israel's problem our problem, and the greater king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking to us and teaching us who you are and what you want us to, to know and learn from your word, God. Thank you for this chance to look at your word as a family today. Uh, I pray that you would be with us as we listen, work in our hearts to help us love you and trust you more and obey you more deeply with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So first off, Israel's problem. Now, like I said, the, the book of Judges, just time after time after time, the Israelites are getting themselves into trouble. They're rebelling against God. They're making a mess. And the author of book of, of Judges doesn't want us to have any confusion about the source of Israel's problems throughout this book. He, he says, yes, this suffering that they go through typically involves them being oppressed by foreign nations. But really, all of that oppression by the foreign nations is secondary. The big 
problem, the big thing that's causing their suffering, according to the author of the book of Judges, is that they have turned away from God and worshiped idols. And any other suffering that they go through, any other trouble that they face, is really the result of this core problem. And if you've been with us the past few weeks, we've seen that God rescued the Israelites from Egypt and he brought them through the wilderness. And again and again, they just keep rebelling and disobeying and not trusting him. And he's been patient with them over and over and over, teaching them to follow him. And then last week we got to Joshua leading them into the promised land. They finally reached a point where there's a generation that's getting it right. They're trusting God. They're following him. They're, they're doing what he says. They're going into the promised land. Things are looking good. And then it tells us in Judges 2 verse 10, that generation died and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done in Israel. The parents failed to teach their kids properly about God and who he is, and the kids rebelled against God. And so in today, today's passage, the author of Judges, he's doing everything in his power to show us how terrible and wicked their rebellion is. I realize we live in a world that's pluralistic. We have lots of friends who come from different religious backgrounds. Maybe some of us come from different religious backgrounds. And we don't typically think of it as a huge deal to, to worship and serve other gods in our society. Our society has this narrative that all religions are more or less fundamentally equal. And because of that, I think we might have a tendency to not be too offended or upset by what the Israelites are doing here. But the author of Judges clearly was offended by what they were doing. And he writes this passage in a way to try and get us to feel how offended he is and, and to help us feel upset about it too. I mean, if you look at the words that he uses here, he uses emotionally charged words to describe what Israel's doing. In verse 12, Israel doesn't just turn from God, they abandon him. In verse 17, Israel doesn't just follow other gods, they whore after other gods. That's strong language. He's trying, to, he's trying to show us that what Israel is doing to God right here is the equivalent of walking out on your spouse and just throwing yourself at anyone on the street who will have you. It's horrible. It's offensive. It's terrible. And he wants us to feel that because he says that's the core of all the other problems that Israel is going to face throughout the book of Judges. And not surprisingly, Israel's rebellion against God led to judgment from God and big consequences. And again, I realize in our culture, the consequences that happen to Israel right here may seem excessive. They may seem extreme. God, God hands them over to plunderers and enemies. That seems really harsh for just choosing another religion, right? But the author of Judges wants us to see that in reality, these are just the natural consequences of the choices that Israel has made. And he shows us this in a couple different ways in this passage. First, verse 11 says the people did what was evil in God's eyes. And then verse 15 says that God, his hand was against them for harm. We can't see this in the English, but the Hebrew word for evil and the word for harm actually sound very similar. So he's making a play on words. He, he's saying their evil and this harm that came to them are actually connected. It's like in English, if you say someone was acting recklessly and then they got wrecked, there's a direct connection there. He's saying there's a direct connection between the choices that they made to rebel against God and the consequences that came to them. One clearly leads to another. And then another way he shows this is 
is in the way that he describes their rebellion. Look at verse 13. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. That word for served right there, it's the same word as to be a slave to. And the author wants us to see this principle that when you abandon God, when you abandon the God who saved you from slavery in Egypt in order to worship idols, you're making the choice to put yourself back into slavery. And later on, when God gives them over to their enemies and plunderers, he's actually just depicting physically the choice they've already made spiritually. He's showing us that the consequences of their actions are natural consequences. They're, they're what you should expect from the choices that Israel has made. They've chosen a path that is spiritually deadly and enslaving, and it leads them to physical death and enslavement. But as we see in this passage, that's not the end of the story because God again and again and again steps in to rescue them. And the crazy thing is, I don't know about you, when, when I was a kid, I grew up in Sunday school and they would teach us about the book of Judges and they had this, this cycle that the book would re- repeat that, that the Israelites would rebel against God and then they would suffer and then they would cry out for God to rescue them and then God would save them and then they'd rebel and it just circles like this. And on that stage where Israel cried out, in my mind, and and maybe this was even taught to me, in my mind, that was always like, Israel said, God, we're sorry, rescue us and save us and we'll follow you again. But actually, that's not what he's saying here. What he says right here is that Israel doesn't do that at all. They just cry out because they're suffering and things are miserable for them. And, And he actually says God has pity on them. God rescues them not because Israel does anything to to put themselves in a place where they deserve God's goodness to them. God rescues them because he looks down at them and they are miserable and pitiful and he has pity on them. He has this amazing abounding love that's beyond what they deserve. But even when God steps in to rescue them, they keep rebelling. They keep turning against him and it makes their situation even worse. And the author tells us here that God's way of rescuing Israel again and again throughout the book of Judges is by raising up judges. And judges were military leaders who would come in and rescue Israel from slavery and oppression and then lead over the nation or a section of the nation for the rest of the judge's life. And each time God raises up a judge, Israel has peace for the rest of that judge's lifetime. And then as soon as the judge dies, more trouble starts again. And even though things are better during the times when they have judges than during the times when they don't, things aren't necessarily great even during the times of the judges. Because we can see right here, they they still didn't listen to the judges that God gave them. That was in verse uh, 18, I think. Yeah. And there was no guarantee that the judges themselves even followed God. Many of the judges actually made idols of their own that Israel ended up worshiping. It's a mess. Israel in the time of the judges is a mess. And especially as you get to the end of the book, I don't know if you've ever read through the entire book of Judges. Chapters 17 through 21 are some of those chapters where you read them and you're just like, that's in the Bible? Like literally, this guy takes his mistress to, or concubine, sorry, he takes his concubine to a city, they stay there. The city comes and says, we want to have sex with her. So send her out to us so we can do that. He tosses her out. They gang rape her all night long and then leave her either half dead or totally dead on the doorstep. He throws her onto his donkey, 
takes her back home, chops her body into 12 pieces. We're not even sure if she's dead yet when he does this. Sends it out through all of Israel and everyone gets upset and is like, that's not okay. Let's slaughter this city. But one of the tribes, the tribe that that city came from is like, no, we need to defend our brothers. And so a civil war starts in Israel and one tribe almost gets completely wiped out. Only 600 men survive. And so to keep that tribe from being wiped off the face of the planet, you know what they do? They go slaughter another town, kidnap all the virgins in that town and give them to the men as their wives. It's a mess. Israel is, is a shockingly terrible place by the end of the book of Judges. They need a better solution than anything they have come across so far. And the end of the book of Judges tells us what that solution is going to be. The whole book of Judges is actually constructed as an argument for the fact that Israel needs a king because the judges are not fixing the problems that Israel has right now. They need a better solution. And, and the author of Judges says, the king, having a king who can rule over us is going to fix our problems. But as we're gonna see in the coming weeks, the kings don't make things any better at all either. So that's Israel's problem. Let's now look at our problem and see how it connects. How, how does this pattern of rebellion that Israel has connect with us in our world today? because it might feel quite separate and disconnected. And the rest of the book of, of Judges unpacks the repeated stories of the various ways Israel rebels against God. But in today's passage, it actually summarizes all of that as one big event. In effect, it's saying all the individual acts of rebellion that Israel does throughout this book fall under one bigger umbrella of just an overall process of rebelling against God as a nation. The whole book of Judges, yes, it's several different generations doing several different things, but really it's just one big act of the nation of Israel falling away from God. All the smaller stories in the book are part of the bigger story of this nation disobeying and rebelling and turning from God. And so all, all of their rebellion lines up under the category in verse 12 of going after other gods which means all their disobedience throughout this book flows out of their failure to obey the first of the 10 commandments. You shall have no other gods before me because they disobey that commandment. They disobey all these other things and, and rebel in all these various different ways. They turn to idols. They commit fact, acts of false worship because they refuse to practice right worship in the first place. And the book of Judges, it's showing us that proper worship is a matter of life and death. Proper worship is a matter of life and death. In terms of practical connection points to our world today, this passage is telling us worship the one true God of the Bible, not idols, because worship is a matter of life and death. And I realize we, we live in a city full of statues and idols, but my assumption is, and I could be wrong, my assumption is that most of us here today don't make a habit of going out and worshiping those statues and idols. But the reality is, even if we don't go out and worship statues and idols that we physically bow down to, each of us has things other than God in our hearts and in our lives that we give priority over God. And the Bible calls these things idols because what they do is they replace God in our hearts. We take things, usually good things, and we make them God things in our lives. And today's passage tells us that that is destructive. 
And it gives us a key reason why serving other gods and worshiping idols other than the real God is destructive. And that reason is that we become slaves to what we worship. We already saw that, that in verse 12, when it says they serve the Baals, sorry, verse 11, when it says they serve the Baals, that, that word is the word for to be a slave to. And I realized the Hebrew or the word worship in English doesn't appear in this passage, but the word bow down appears three times. And the Hebrew word for bow down is actually the same Hebrew word as to worship. So even though in English, we might not have the word worship in this passage, this passage is all about worship. And what is worship? Worship is giving ultimate allegiance to someone or something. It's living in a way that shows someone or something is supremely valuable. Biblically, only God is worthy of our worship. And the problem with the Israelites in this passage is that they were taking the worship that's due to God alone and giving it to other things. And realize as they were doing this, in their minds, they were still worshiping the true God. They would go and they would say their prayers. They would go and they would make their sacrifices. They would do all the exterior things that their society equated with worshiping God. The problem was, once they had finished doing that, they would walk out and live the rest of their life as if he didn't exist. It's sort of the equivalent of today, showing up for church, singing at the top of your lungs, putting some money in the offering box, having your hands up in the sky high as you sing, and then you leave. And as soon as you get out that back door, it's all done. And you live as if God didn't exist for the rest of your week. And God was not okay with that back then, and he's not okay with that today. Doing the external actions that your culture equates with worship is not the same as having a heart that is truly committed and devoted to living in worship of God. Showing up for church on Sunday doesn't mean that we are worshiping properly. Worship is something we do every single moment of every single day, not just for a couple hours on Sunday morning. And I think it's really instructive for us if we look at the ways that Israel was practicing false worship in this passage, because it tells us they were worshiping the Baals and the Ashtaroths. Now, I'm guessing most of us probably don't have an expansive knowledge of ancient Near Eastern worship and idols. So I'll tell you, Baal and Ashtaroth were fertility gods worshiped by the people in the land that Israel went into. Fertility gods were the gods that you would pray to and do sacrifices for if you wanted rain to come so that your fields could grow lots of crops and you could make lots of money this year. Fertility gods were the gods that you would pray to and worship if you wanted your cows and sheep to have lots of babies so that you could make lots of money. And they were the gods that you would pray to if you yourself wanted to have lots of children so that you could have a, a legacy and people to pass it on to all this wealth that you've collected from your fields and your herds. Basically, the prosperity gods were the ones who made you wealthy and made you prosperous and gave you a legacy. And in order to get their favor, you would participate in ceremonies that aimed at getting them on your side. You would bow down to them. You would do different things, including religious prostitution and child sacrifice. And the people of Israel, they bowed down to these carved images. They took part in these horrible religious ceremonies as a way of seeking wealth and prosperity and a legacy. And I know, like child sacrifice, it's horrible. I, I hope that none of us would ever consider actually taking part in a child sacrifice ceremony. But if you think about the things Israel wanted from their child sacrifice, wealth, prosperity, legacy, 
These are things that all of us want, aren't they? And probably even things that we would be willing to sacrifice something to get, even if the thing we'd be willing to sacrifice falls short of our children. I'm assuming most of us in the church, and I could be wrong again, I'm assuming most of us don't take part in religious ceremonies to seek these things. Although I know some companies in Hong Kong will like bring in feng shui masters to arrange your offices so that you can have a more prosperous year. And I think like on one level, if you are taking part in religious ceremonies to seek these things, it's probably easier to see how that is false worship. But for those of us who don't participate in religious ceremonies to seek wealth and prosperity and a legacy, what does it look like to seek these things in a way that prioritizes them over God? Because anytime we seek wealth and prosperity and a legacy in a way that prioritizes them over God, what we're doing is we're giving them our worship. And remember, we become slaves to what we worship. Just as Israel became slaves to Baal by worshiping Baal, we become slaves today to whatever we worship. And when we prioritize the pursuit of wealth and prosperity and a legacy above God, what we're doing is we're actually making ourselves slaves to those things. There was a writer, David Foster Wallace. He was a pretty well-known writer 10, 20 years ago. He wasn't a Christian, but he captured this truth really compellingly in a speech at a commencement. And I want to just read to you what he says, because this is from a non-Christian perspective, but he still totally gets it. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, Yahweh, or the Wiccan Mother Goddess, or the Four Noble Truths, or some inviolable inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough never feel you have enough. It's the truth. And he goes on and lists out several other things that we could choose, whether that's beauty or love or sex or success or whatever. He, he says, whatever it is that you worship, it's going to eat you alive. We become slaves to whatever we worship. So following this idea of wealth and prosperity and a legacy and and making sacrifices to get them, what does it look like to functionally worship these things and make these types of sacrifices to get them today? Well, let me share one story from real life that depicts what this could look like. Several years ago, I had a friend who was working in a law firm and made an idol of her career success. She wanted to be successful, wanted to move up in the company, wanted to earn more and be respected by her coworkers. And she may have even had some type of Christian motive to this. Like, you know, if my coworkers all see me being successful and moving up in the company, maybe they'll be curious to know more about the God I worship because she was a Christian. Um, but as you'll see in the story, her, her job success was the primary place that she was tapping real meaning in her life. She wanted to be prosperous, just like the Israelites did when they worshiped Baal. And you know what happened? It made her a slave to her boss because she worked so hard at her job. And she started living for the boss's approval because he held the keys as to whether or not she could receive the object of her worship. His word determined whether her dreams in life could be fulfilled. So when her boss gave her a bad performance review, it crushed her. But she said, that's okay. That's okay. I won't let this get me down. I'm going to work even harder so that my boss 
knows that I'm a valuable member of this team. I'm going to prove it to him, demonstrate it, show him that I'm important through my work. And she worked longer hours. She made bigger sacrifices in her personal life. And the next time the employment review came along, again, it was negative. And she kept working harder, kept working harder, kept giving up her weekends, staying late into the evening, trying and trying to prove her worth to her boss until she reached the point where her body could not handle it anymore. And she broke down and got sick and had to go to the hospital for like two weeks. And as she was lying there in the hospital, the boss came to visit her. And he said to her, we cannot wait to get you back in the office. You're so important to our team. Our team can't function without you. And my friend said, excuse me? <laughs> Why would you give me such negative reviews if that's the case? And the boss said, you're too valuable to our team. If I gave you a positive review, they'd promote you and they'd take you off our team and we can't afford to lose you. So I had to lie so that our team could keep you so that you could stay with us and keep our team running. See what happened. My friend had disordered worship and so she became a slave to her boss so deeply that his voice and his approval were the only things that mattered in her life. She was willing to sacrifice her, her body and her health and her social life and make unreasonable sacrifices for the sake of earning his approval. And thankfully, this experience <laughs> opened her eyes to the destructive insanity of what she had been doing and she quit her job after this. But that's what happens when we worship idols and false gods. We give them power over us. We become slaves to them and they direct how we value things in life and the decisions we make. And you know, the scariest part of this story, the whole time my friend was doing this, she was faithfully attending her church. She was faithfully attending her small group. By all appearances, she was worshiping the God of the Bible. But because something else functionally controlled her heart, she was actually enslaved to her boss's opinion and feedback rather than experiencing the freedom that she was meant to find in knowing God. Her heart was trapped in worshiping something else. So yes, the external circumstances today look quite different for us than they did for Israel, but at the heart, we're no different than them. We seek our heart's desires in things other than God. We seek those things as a higher priority than God, and it makes us slaves, just like it did for Israel. Even if we're not physically bowing down to an idol, even if we're not going to a religious ceremony to celebrate another God, we're still trapped by idolatry and false worship, living our lives as if things other than God are of ultimate importance to us. And we still make sacrifices we shouldn't make to get the things our hearts desire. There's an author named Ian Proven who puts it this way. He says, we have the quote coming in just a second. The old gods are still with us. They've simply changed their clothes so that they merge more easily into the modern crowd. They still claim to provide meaning to life, to explain the universe, and to provide the basis for personal security. They still demand wholehearted commitment from their worshipers. And we could add to that, they still make slaves of those who worship them. And just like Israel in today's passage, we can't fix ourselves. Left to ourselves, we'll continue down this path of slavery and destruction. We need a better solution. So let's look at our third point today, the greater king. So what's our hope? How can we be set free from this slavery and the consequences that are brought by us on ourselves? You know, the whole argument of the book of Judges is that if Israel can just get a king, everything will be better. 
The king is the solution to the problem. And several times in the last chapters of the book of Judges, the writer points out the problem is that the nation has no king. And it repeats it again and again, including in the very last verse of the book, which if you're following our Bible reading plan is our memory verse for this week. So you can say it along with me. If you know it, if you don't know it, we'll put it on the screen so you can read it along with me. It's from Judges chapter 21, verse 25. And it says, you can read along with me or say it along. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The message is clear. If Israel just had a king, everything would be better. And then they get kings and nothing changes. Many of the kings actually lead them into more idolatry and make things even worse for them. And they continue to be attacked by other nations. They continue to suffer at their hands. Nothing is fixing it. Why? Why does judges say we need a king and then the kings come and it doesn't fix the problem? It's because you need a solution that fits the problem. See, a king who rules the nation but can't fix our hearts isn't going to fix the problems of Israel or of us. And no king of Israel historically, not even the best ones like King David, had the power to change people's hearts, which means we need a greater king, a greater king than any of the kings of Israel historically. We need a king who can not only regulate our external behavior, but who can transform our hearts We need a king who can rescue us from our slavery to our false gods and return us to the worship of the one true God. And here's the thing, these desires we've been discussing today that cause us to turn to our idols, they're not bad desires in and of themselves, desiring wealth and prosperity and a legacy. The problem is that we're seeking them in the wrong places. When we try to seek them from idols, we seek them in ways that are harmful and destructive to ourselves and to others. And we need a king who can reframe our pursuit of these things so that we're actually seeking them in ways that are healthy and productive. So where do we find this king? The answer is Jesus. Jesus is the king who from eternity past has has reigned in heaven and dwelt in heavenly wealth and prosperity. Jesus has the ultimate legacy. He is the king of the universe forever. He will reign forever. He created and sustains the universe. And you know what he did for your sake and for my sake? He gave it all up. He stepped down off the throne. He left his heavenly wealth and security, even though he's the king. And why did he do that? To come to the earth and suffer and die for you and me to pay the price that you and I deserve for our false worship so that we can be set free from our slavery to our idols. You know, idols, they're going to call for you to sacrifice for them, but they will never sacrifice themselves for you. But Jesus did. He gave up his life for you and for me, but death wasn't the end for him. He was raised from the dead and then he was seated again on the throne of the universe as the ultimate ruler and king forever, the only king who can not only fix the external circumstances of our lives, but who can change our hearts, who can restore us to a proper worship of God. And in that process, look what he does with our desires. He doesn't say, get rid of these desires, they're evil, you just need to let go of them. No, he says, look, I'm redirecting where you're seeking to get these desires fulfilled, because there's only one true place that you can actually get them fulfilled in a lasting and sustainable way, and it's him. So Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might what? 
become rich. He gave up his riches and endured poverty so he can give you and me prosperity beyond anything this world can offer us. And how can he promise us these riches, especially when so many of his followers, so many Christians around the world are so poor by earthly standards? Well, Romans chapter eight says that he does it by adopting us into God's family so that we can be co-heirs with him of the universe. If you're a Christian, you already have infinite riches that are yours because you are a co-heir with Jesus of the entire universe. Because Jesus brought us into God's family. The Bible tells us one day he will raise those who trust in him from the dead to new life. And in that day, we will be co-heirs with him of the universe. Like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Bill Gates, their wealth is nothing in comparison with this. This is so much greater wealth and prosperity and legacy than anything this world can offer us, than anything the idols we pursue can even hope to to set before us as a possibility. If we truly believe this is true, that Jesus has rescued us, that he has given us wealth and prosperity and a legacy beyond anything that this world can give us, then what draw is the money here and now going to hold for us? Money's going to disappear the moment we're dead money that we can't take with us. You know what it's going to do to our desires and our relationship with money when we actually understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us? It's going to make us generous. We're willingly going to sacrifice the money we have here and now to love and serve others. See, trusting Jesus actually reverses the process of idolatry. Idolatry, when you idolize wealth, it says sacrifice your relationships because you love money. But Jesus tells us, no, 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 no you can sacrifice your money and use it to love others. And once we get this, once we understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us, the only proper response is worshiping him. And by worship, I don't just mean showing up at church on Sunday morning. I mean, living our whole life as if he is supremely valuable. So I want to ask you, what do you use your time and money? What do you spend it pursuing? How can you spend your time and money in a way that shows that Jesus is infinitely valuable? Or what do you celebrate? How can you use your celebration in life in a way that shows that Jesus is infinitely valuable? What do you spend your free time thinking about? What do you talk about with your friends? How can you use these thoughts and conversations to show that God is infinitely valuable and worthy more than anything else that this world has to offer us? What would it look like to reorient your life around proper worship of Jesus, using your time, your money, your celebration, your thoughts, your conversations to show that God and only God is ultimately valuable and worthy of our worship. Like the Israelites, we need a king who can save us from ourselves because our false worship has led us away from the true God into the trap of idols who enslave us and oppress us. And like the Israelites, our only hope is a king who can not only rule over the external world, but who can transform our hearts. But praise God that Jesus is that king, that king who rescues us from our slavery to our idols, who rescues us from ourselves and frees us to find true abundant life in proper worship of the one true God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who does not abandon us in our rebellion, who doesn't leave us to ourselves, even though we deserve it, God. We confess that we have put other things before you in our lives. 
We confess that we've made ourselves slaves to these things, despite the fact that you offer us freedom. We confess that we have used others and sacrificed relationships to get the things that we want, rather than loving others and sacrificing money and wealth as a way of loving them. God, give our hearts a deeper love for you, a deeper desire to worship you in all of life, not just for a couple hours on Sunday morning. Help us to see and celebrate Jesus as the great king that we need. Thank you that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.